lovely robes of the great officers of state, the gleaming swords, the crown jewels, the massed assembly of bishops in scarlet and white, and the matchless setting of the abbey itself. I thought at one moment as I half closed my eyes and watched the measured ceremony being carried through that I might be watching something that had happened a thousand years before. In all that time, there has been no major change in our coronations. That's what the BBC commentator Richard Dimbleby wrote a few days after the coronation of Elizabeth II in June 1953. He'd had a good view. He'd sat for nine hours in a cramped box specially built high above the arches of Westminster Abbey. His commentaries on royal events have become justly famous. But no major change in our coronations. A thousand years? You must be joking. In most ways, modern British coronations date from 1902. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. It was Tuesday, 24th of June, 1902, and things were not going to plan. The coronation of Edward VII, eldest son of Victoria and Albert, was in two days' time. But everything was chaos. Frederick Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was a curmudgeonly old man who'd taken months to come up with an order of service and the King had immediately rejected it as far too long. That was a bit unfair, since coronations in the past, George IV's in 1821, for example, had lasted five hours or more. Anyway, nobody was really listening to the old Archbishop of Canterbury. He'd been brought up to be a farmer in Devon, but had somehow ended up being headmaster of rugby school. When Gladstone had made him bishop, other better-bred clergymen complained that it was, quote, the most frightful enormity ever perpetrated by a prime minister. In 1902, Temple was 80. He discovered that the coronation service had mostly been written behind his back by the Bishop of Winchester, Randall Davidson. Now, Davidson was a well-spoken Herovian... That's much more like it. Mm -hmm. ...who'd spent most of his life oozing deference at court and had ended up being Queen Victoria's favourite preacher. He'd been more than happy to come up with something that the new king would go along with. Edward VII was 60, but had the reputation as a bit of a playboy. What he wanted was something snappy and without any tomfoolery. So down at the Abbey, where they were rehearsing for the coronation, Old Temple was stumbling his way through a liturgy he didn't really approve of. But that was the least of the problems. English coronations have for hundreds of years been organised by a court official called the Earl Marshal. Now, Earl's Marshal have, since 1483, always come from the same family, the family that are now the Dukes of Norfolk. Well, in 1902, the current Earl Marshal was Henry, the 15th Duke of Norfolk. He was a saintly but scruffy Catholic whom everybody liked but thought was completely incompetent. And the reason was that he was completely incompetent. (laughs) 
Norfolk had gone to fight in the Boer War. I think he had no previous military experience. He'd just blagged his way in somehow. But he'd immediately fallen off his horse and had to be sent home. When Victoria had died in 1901, the 15th Duke had turned up at the palace, had a row with the new king and insisted that organising funerals and coronations were his job. Difficult to argue, since technically he was right about that. How they got through Victoria's funeral, nobody knew. The order of service referred to the dead queen as he. <laughs> distinguished, distinguished guests were still being moved about in the chapel as the coffin was arriving. So now they tried very hard to prevent Norfolk running the coronation. But once again, he stamped his dukely foot and got his way. Well, Norfolk had organised a court of claims. It was a special court with a very long history where people, mostly peers of the realm, paid lawyers to state their claim that hereditarily they had the right to present the king's well, great spurs or the king's gold spurs or to carry the first sword or the second or even the great sword or to hold the crystal mace or the scepter with the dove or to offer the king's gold cup or his cap or his basin and towel. Or to provide his right love. Which apparently was a privilege that belonged to the owner of the manor of Worksop in Nottinghamshire. In Henry VIII's day, various individuals seriously claimed they had a right to the king's bed and the undrunk wine left over from the coronation banquet. Even in 1902, it had all become so ridiculous that the satirical magazine Punch had begun publishing jokey cartoons all about it and then about the coronation itself. The plan. With days to go, what few rehearsals Norfolk had managed to arrange had been complete chaos. Nobody had any idea where to process or what bit of arcane paraphernalia they were supposed to be holding or presenting <laughs> or where. Let alone why. Only a miracle would save the whole thing from being a complete and total farce. And then, up at Buckingham Palace, they grabbed the king and pinned him down, flailing and shouting on the billiard table. One of the many men people had suspected to have been Jack the Ripper was getting his knives out and was preparing to slice into the old man. Actually, Sir Frederick Treves was the royal physician and hadn't been Jack the Ripper. You know, I don't think there ever was such a person as Jack the Ripper. That's a thing we must look at one day. Later, my grandmother was a maid at Sir Frederick Treves's house. And what did she see? No rippering. <laughs> Edward VII had gone down with acute appendicitis and an operation was the only way to save his life on the billiard table. Always supposing he survived, his coronation would have to be postponed. Well, everybody breathed a very heavy sigh of relief about that. Nobody at that moment realised that the coronation of Edward VII was going to be one of the key events that defined the British monarchy as we now know it. When it comes to the royals, the British love to talk about tradition and about institutions that go back a thousand years. But back in 1993, an historian, David Canadine, wrote a chapter in which he claimed that many, if not most, royal rituals were in fact invented in the late 19th century. In fact, it appeared in a now famous volume of essays about the invention of a wide variety of traditions at the time. It's called The Invention of Tradition. We look at another of the essays in one of our podcasts on the invention of Scottishness, 
and we find that it was very largely wrong. The question here is, was Canadine right about the royals? In particular, is the coronation, as we now know it, a tradition that was in fact invented at the end of the 19th century? The answer to that is yes, and also no. <laughs> Let's start with no. The service that was devised for the coronation of Edward VII in 1902 was in fact based on a medieval text known as the Liber Regalis, the royal book. According to the historian Jennifer Loach, the Liber Regalis was first used for the coronation of Edward II in 1307. There's a beautifully illuminated illustrated, yeah. copy dating from 1382 in Westminster Abbey. If you look through, you find they built a raised theatre or platform in front of the altar. You discover an oath, communion, an anointing and rituals of dressing the monarch with various items like a ring. All these are there in 1307 and turned up in 1902. In fact, they reappeared in all subsequent 20th century coronations. Some of them we now know go right back even before the Liber Regalis to the crowning of Anglo-Saxon kings in the 8th century. The exact words were slightly different each time, but much of the basic structure of the English coronation ceremony really can be dated back over a thousand years. However, that's not quite the whole story. It's always like that with you, John. Chunks of this basic thousand-year-old ceremony have been lost, or heavily rewritten anyway, for James II in 1685, and had then subsequently been further mangled around for each of the eight next sovereigns, William and Mary, and Georges I to IV, and William IV. By the time Victoria was crowned in 1838, the coronation was looking very different from the Liber Regalis. So what happened to bring the old ceremonies back after Victoria? Since the 1830s, there had been a move, especially among high church Anglicans, to bring back all kinds of old ceremonies. By the 1890s, with the Queen in her 70s, these liturgical enthusiasts and antiquarians, of course, began thinking about the next coronation. So they published the coronation ceremonies of Charles I, 1625, and James I, 1603, and other monarchs. They re-examined and published the original 14th century Liber Regalis. Whenever the old queen passed away, everyone who knew anything about rites and ceremonials agreed that the next coronation was going to be more historical. Actually, it turns out that a lot of this liturgical scholarship was bogus. The Catholic Jesuit historian Herbert Thurston quietly pointed out that certain of these enthusiasts were in fact peddling a completely implausible and nationalistic interpretation of English history. Antiquarians like John Wickham Legg, who was in fact a retired doctor, and his son Leopold, who was a fellow of New College in Oxford, desperately wanted to believe that English kings had always in fact been in control of the English church. They, and not the Pope, had run the church even in the centuries long before Henry VIII's break with Rome. What these antiquarians were really up to, Thurston pointed out, was hunting through old coronation rites, looking for evidence to prove their ridiculous pet theory. It was, of course, complete nonsense. They also wanted to prove that the coronation of English kings was proudly and distinctively English. But Herbert Thurston, who was a Catholic and therefore less invested in English religious nationalism, was able to show that the medieval English coronation rites were very little different from coronation rites in France and across Europe. But what all this antiquarian documentary digging meant 
was that when the Bishop of Winchester, Randall Davison, got down to working out Edward VII's coronation, there was no question but that he was going to get back to the old texts again. He ignored the Wickham legs and their nonsense, but the coronation of 1902 was indeed based on the Liber Regalis of 1307. So whatever David Canadine wants to say, the coronation of 1902 was not exactly an invented tradition. What seemed new in 1902 was the desire to make the coronation old, to make a big deal out of its historical origins. But you have to say that even this wasn't really novel, it was just the way coronations had always been until that gap between James II, 1685, and Victoria in 1838. The 20th century coronation wasn't invented in 1902, but it was reinvented. However, that's very much not the whole story. Once you step outside the solemn... And you have to say, interminable... (laughs) ...ceremony at Westminster Abbey, everything changes. This craze for rediscovering old religious rites was just part of a much bigger Victorian boom in all kinds of history that seemed to affect everyone, from primary school to the universities. Young children were now being taught to read using history books, although they were usually fanciful and improving tales about King Alfred burning the cakes, I had that, or the young Horatio Nelson trudging to school in a snowstorm. Apparently his dad had told him he must do his best. By the 1890s at Oxford and Cambridge, history was overtaking classics as the smart thing to do. There was a growing pride in what the academics fancifully imagined had been Britain's unstoppable rise and rise to parliamentary democracy, greatness and empire. We have a look at some of this in our podcast on the historical satire 1066 and all that. There was also a popular fashion for Merry England. Aristocrats in their country houses began staging fake medieval tournaments. A very good book about all that by Mark Girouard called Return to Camelot. Mm, it's great. From the 1870s, villagers began celebrating May Day, even dancing with ribbons round maypoles. I did that. But it had never been an English tradition. It's in fact introduced by John Ruskin, who persuaded a lot of teachers training at a college in South London that it was a good old English thing to do, and they spread it out across England. Remarkable. (laughs) Around 1900, musicians like Cecil Sharp went collecting folk songs. They were only interested in rural songs, not, for example, sea shanties or minor songs. But that was typical of a mood among some artists and craftspeople to return not exactly to the countryside, but at least to the values of what they supposed to have been good old rural England. Yeah, pretty cottages with roses round the door. Mm. Which we all love. In 1894, the National Trust appeared with its own distinctive, highly romanticised view of the British past. This was also when mock Tudor houses began to be built and the insides of Paris churches were ripped out so that they could be reconstructed in what the Victorians believed was proper Gothic style. This was when local holiday guidebooks began to appear, and they were mostly about local history. Still are. Always mystifies me, that does. Why does it mystify you? History on holiday? I go for a holiday from history. Listen to a podcast. You? <laughs> yes, you listen to a podcast as you drive on your holiday. In 1897, the Bishop of London, Mandel Crichton, who'd been a Cambridge professor of ecclesiastical history, gave a lecture at the Royal Institution. Crichton told his audience... There can be no doubt that in late years there has been a very decided increase of general interest in history amongst us. In small towns and villages, historical subjects are amongst the most popular for lectures, and historical illusions are acceptable to all audiences. 
good thing too, thought Crichton, because it would make the working class pull their socks up and, quotes, act worthily of their mighty past. Past the sick buckets, honestly. <laughs> and what all this boom in Victoria popular history meant was that by 1902, everyone, rich, poor, educated, and less so bishops, professors, were up for a pageant. And uh, what better than a good old coronation, huh? Edward VII's coronation in 1902 was the first of the popular, royal, spectacular street pageants of mock historical dressing up and marching. Now, that was something entirely new. Hurrah! The coronation of Edward VII in 1902 set the precedent for all the coronations of the 20th century. The religious ceremonial that took place in Westminster Abbey was, to a significant extent, a shortened version of what had happened for hundreds of years up to the coronation of Charles II in 1661. Some elements of it were based on texts that dated from before the Norman Conquest. So when people talk glibly about a thousand years of tradition, they're not entirely wrong. On the other hand, these old coronation texts had been badly neglected for over two centuries before 1902. Reviving them was part of a late Victorian and Edwardian craze for anything historical. It turned the coronation into a popular history pageant, and that's how it remained for the rest of the century. It was in fact very different from anything that had happened before. And once you step outside all the solemnity of the Abbey, well, then we really are in a world that was invented between the 1870s and the First World War. Official events for Victoria's coronation in 1838 had lasted exactly one day, even though there were, as usual, feasts and fireworks in many parts of the country. For Edward VII's coronation in 1902, there was a fortnight of events, from the arrival of overseas guests on the 23rd of June through to the King's Dinner to the Poor, meaning half a million poor Londoners, on the 5th of July. It included a gala at the Royal Opera House, a review of the naval fleet and several processions through London. Everyone wanted to be in on the act. There was in fact a very long debate about how many bank holidays everyone was to have. The coronation was planned for Thursday, so the initial idea was to give everyone Thursday and Friday off, and perhaps Saturday too. But the authorities in Glasgow and Edinburgh and other cities too pointed out that with, what with shops closed on Sunday, people would run out of food. Nobody in 1902, you remember, had a fridge. Business owners also predictably moaned about the lack of trade. Then there was an extraordinary constitutional wrangle about who, if anyone, had the authority to give people a day off anyway. In the end, King Edward simply signed a royal proclamation giving everyone a holiday on Thursday and Friday. Events were planned everywhere. There were processions and church services, banquets, ox roasts and children's parties. In London, temporary stands were put up, decorated with canvas and papier-mâché, where seats were sold at high prices so that you could watch the King and Queen in their 1762 coronation carriage, with grooms in their 18th century powdered wigs, accompanied by a long procession of lords and ladies in their carriages, and tens of thousands of soldiers from all around the empire. Well, this was all something new. Streets were decorated with swags and bunting. Shopkeepers hung up decorations and stocked their shelves with a vast variety of coronation memorabilia. 
the Canadians, and you remember Edward VII was king of Canada too, the Canadians nearly blocked Whitehall with what historian Angus Trumbull calls, quotes, a riotously vulgar commemorative arch. <laughs> there were enormous letters on its front which read, Canada, Britain's granary. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> One Plymouth firm, Pethick Brothers, were just then in the middle of widening London Bridge. They very cannily erected a vast advertising hoarding just where the film cameras would see it. And of course there were plenty of film cameras, with dozens of crews coming from around the world and paying good money for the best viewpoints. They were not, of course, allowed into the Abbey. That was anyway much too dark for filming. But early filmmakers loved celebrities, street scenes and processions, and a coronation was perfect. There was even a brief silent film of the ceremony itself. How- well, a, well, a very condensed version of it anyway, condensed both in length and in scale. It was a Franco-British co-production that had been made completely in a studio in Montreuil in France over the preceding weeks. So it was really faked up. But in fact, that was quite common. They would fake up battles and things. Everybody understood what they were looking at. You couldn't film a battle, so you faked it up. You couldn't film a coronation, so you faked it up. It starred an unnamed lavatory attendant. Or maybe he was a brewer's assistant or a man who worked in a laundry. Versions differ. The important point was that he happened to be a dead ringer for King Edward VII. Edward VII's coronation was, in fact, in every way an extended public royal spectacular. And, as the historian David Canadine points out in that chapter on the invention of tradition, it came as part of a series of public royal spectaculars that had only started in 1872. Historians, including Canadine and Roy Strong, have had a lot of fun describing just how very, very bad English royals had been at ceremonial before then. At George III's coronation, 1761, nobody had remembered to bring the sword of state. They had to go and find another one from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Nor even a chair for the king to sit on until he was enthroned. They also forgot the canopy that was supposed to be held over the king and the queen, and the one they quickly bodged together looked the whole time likely to collapse on top of them all. All the way through the service, the king could be heard telling all the other participants, good-humouredly as it happened, what they were supposed to be doing. One writer who was there remembered, quotes, that the whole was confusion, irregularity and disorder. Sounds rather charming to me. <laughs> At Victoria's coronation, the clergy again kept losing their place. And two of the ladies carrying the Queen's train gossiped audibly the whole time. As they did apparently at George IV's funeral... And at William IV as well. Not the same two women. <laughs> at Victoria's wedding, everybody agreed that the royal carriage, barely glimpsed on a short, quick dash from Buckingham Palace to St James's, was completely outshone by the very fine carriage of the French ambassador. Anyway, the groom, Prince Albert, got lost on the way. And people complained that besides the private ceremony to which Victoria only invited people she liked... It was all very poor and shabby. People also commented on the shabbiness of the wedding of Victoria's eldest son, the Prince of Wales, later Edward VII, of course, to Princess Alexandra in 1863. It was held miles away in Windsor, much to the disgust of the press, since nobody would be able to watch it. Victoria didn't even bother to join any of the wedding processions. At the end of the whole thing, the Prime Minister had to travel back to London by train in a third-class seat. (laughs) Well, he was lucky. The leader of the opposition, Benjamin Disraeli, apparently rode home on his wife's lap. We're still trying to work that one out. (laughs) There was, in fact, bitter public criticism of almost all the weddings of Victoria's nine children, who were all given costly incomes by the state, 
but mostly got married in dowdy private ceremonies. By the time the last of them, Princess Beatrice, was married in 1885, Victoria had retired more or less full-time to Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. She rarely even bothered to come and open Parliament. Yeah, somebody once pinned a to-be-sold-or-let sign outside Buckingham Palace. <laughs> she was never seen. Princess Beatrice was married where virtually nobody could watch, at Whippingham, a tiny village church out in the fields on the Isle of Wight near Osborne House. I grew up not far from Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. All the streets were named after Victoria's family. I lived in Adelaide Grove, which was not nearly as grand as it sounds. Little boy, I would get on my bike and ride out into the country and, in fact, past Whippingham Church. Pretty little place. Behind what I remember were very strange high walls. Local people told me it had been where Victoria used to go. Actually, I now discover she stopped going there in 1880 because she was beginning to notice tourists in the congregation. Goodness. But up in London by 1880, things had begun to change. The coronation of Edward VII in 1902 was a wildly popular occasion in which the whole country seemed determined to have a party. But that was something very new. At least back to the beginning of the 19th century, the royal family had appeared strikingly uninterested in connecting with their loyal subjects. George IV had planned an enormous coronation in 1821. It's mostly famous for his estranged queen trying to break into the abbey. No ticket, no admission, said the man at the door. Literally. But George also got all his peers to dress up in what he imagined was historical costume. The result was universally thought to be embarrassing. The press called it grotesque. The king himself was wearing so many layers of historical stuff that he fainted in the service and had to be brought round with smelling salts. When Napoleon got himself crowned as emperor in 1804, he was described as looking like a walking ice cream. So obviously he was in fashion then. (laughs) The story of George IV's banquet in the evening is something else. The king spent the evening openly flirting with his mistress, Lady Elizabeth Cunningham. In fact, the whole thing ended with the assembled nobility pocketing all the silverware. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is that the coronation of George IV in 1821 hadn't really been a public event. Like all coronations up to and including Victoria's, its focus was on the loyalty of the nobility and the church. The The nobility that stole the silverware. The nobility that stole the silverware. The, the public only really got to glimpse the king as he waddled across the road from Westminster Hall to the Abbey in his layers and layers of historical costume. And then back again. Five and a half hours later. And uh, the spurned queen as she was riding furiously away in her carriage. Victoria, as we've seen, was even less interested in her subjects. And many people disliked the growing Germanness of her court. One newspaper joked that even the royal dogs barked in German. When Edward VII finally came to the throne in 1902, the royals made a big deal about the Englishness of his wife, Alexandra. Well, she wasn't German. Actually, she was Danish. (laughs) (laughs) Historians who've debated the evidence have found that Victoria was never really unpopular, but for a very long while she was in danger of disappearing, which was possibly much worse. Prince Albert, perhaps because of his Germanness, had crafted a new image for the royals. They began to give the impression of being homely and pious. Hard work, loyalty, charitable good deeds. 
He and Victoria visited a number of parts of the country, but they were so ordinary that when they went to Jersey, the people didn't recognise them. They cheered an attendant in a smart uniform instead. It was, as, for example, historian Roy Strong points out in his excellent book on coronations, all rather middle class. The kind of thing the growing numbers of bank clerks and accountants and storekeepers in their new rows of suburban terrace houses thoroughly approved of. Advertisers now cheekily created artists' impressions of Queen Victoria, sipping their cocoa or sampling their cloth or even using their cleaning products to polish her crown jewels. <laughs> the real problem was that being ordinary might charm the middle class, but well, the middle class didn't run the country. More and more working men were getting the vote and Albert's straight-laced respectability didn't cut much ice with them. Victoria actually published two books about her life at Balmoral and her other homes. It was all embarrassingly dull. And when she proposed a third, she was talked out of it. But they were also worried about what she might reveal about her relationship with her Scottish attendant, John Brown. Uh, they were indeed. By 1871, Victoria's disappearance from public life was becoming a constitutional issue. In July that year, Walter Badgett, a very influential essayist who normally backed the monarchy, wrote a damning article for The Economist. Its title was The Monarchy and the People. Queen Victoria, he wrote, quote, has done almost as much injury to the popularity of the monarchy by her long retirement from public life as the most unworthy of her predecessors did by his profligacy and frivolity. It's the essence of the showy parts of the Constitution to acquire importance and popularity by being shown. Badgett's essay sparked a rash of criticisms of the cost of the royals and questions about what exactly they were doing with all the money. By coincidence, preparations were also being made at exactly that moment to place a statue of Oliver Cromwell in Parliament Square. Cromwell, more than anyone else, had been responsible for the execution of King Charles I. Hmm, something had to be done to rescue the royal image. Well, in December 1871, Prince Edward caught typhoid at a party in Scarborough. The town was reported to have a very bad problem with sewage. Typhoid had killed Edward's father, Albert, ten years before, but Edward survived. So in February 1872, much against the Queen's wishes, Prime Minister William Gladstone insisted on a public thanksgiving in St Paul's Cathedral. A procession, nine carriages, was cheered by an orderly crowd. Some representatives, even from working men's organisations, were invited. Well, it all went down very well with the public, even though Badgett went on calling for much more of the same, and the press complained that, well, anywhere else in Europe, nine carriages would have been regarded as pitifully few. Two years later, when the Queen's second son, Alfred, was married, the procession was in open carriages and was accompanied this time by what the press called an inspiring body of troops. By the time Victoria reached her golden jubilee, 50 years on the throne in 1887, the press was putting intense pressure on the government to lay on something showy to try to win back popular affection. Victoria moodily agreed to a service at Westminster Abbey but refused to wear her state robes. The press complained that there were too few soldiers, but on the whole they approved. That year, across the country, statues of the Queen were going up at the rate of one a week. So... Ten years later, in 1897, when Victoria reached her 60th anniversary, her Diamond Jubilee, there was an avalanche of expectation that this time it would be much more spectacularly showy. 
no question now about whether or not they were getting to the old open carriages again, even though the press had commented on how quaint and old-fashioned they had been back in 1887. They were now essential, just perfect for the part. Everybody loved the historical look. This time in 1897, there was to be a Te Deum, Christian hymn of thanksgiving. It was going to be at St Paul's. Victoria, who was still dressed, people remarked, like a little old lady going to church, refused to get down from her carriage. So there was some debate about driving the thing up the Isle of St Paul's. <laughs> but in the end, the service was held outside, where there was a large crowd. This time, there were soldiers from all over the British Empire. 50,000 of them. Canadian hussars, carabiniers from Natal, soldiers from North Borneo on camels, Cypriots in fezes. It's important to remember that all these marching and trotting soldiers... Camels trot? <laughs> no idea. ...were never meant to overawe the public. They were there to entertain them. When papers like the Daily News complained that the royals ought instead to be showing off the best of British, they were told that a procession of metal workers in their aprons wouldn't make much of a spectacle. The Daily Telegraph gasped. It was a pageant brilliant, almost beyond imagination. This time the whole thing was filmed, though the Queen insisted on holding a parasol, which meant that the cameras couldn't really see her. Meanwhile, there were games and competitions and variety performances and services and parades up and down the country, and the souvenir companies had a bonanza. Victoria's funeral, 1901, ignoring her wishes for something quiet and private, was another military extravaganza processing through the streets of London. Perfect for the cameras. So Edward VII's very public coronation celebrations in 1902 didn't come out of the royal blue. They arrived after a crescendo of recent royal spectaculars with a liberal sprinkling of men in uniforms and oldie-worldie-looking props. Everybody enjoyed a historical pageant. So in this sense, the historian David Canadine was right. Much about the modern British monarchy was invented in the late Victorian and Edwardian periods. It was then that the British royals turned into a strange mix of an oddly middle-class family that was given to stagey, mock-historical popular spectaculars. It was a mould that wouldn't change until the royals were turned into media celebrities sometime late in the 20th century. And underneath the service, there was much else about this Edwardian monarchy that also got stuck for decades. Public festivities that surrounded Victoria's Jubilee in 1897 and Edward VII's coronation in 1902 set the tone for the rest of the century. They were something new for the British monarchy. Nothing quite this public had been seen since Elizabeth I and the other Tudors. And because they were another dynasty that for years courted disaster and needed all the public support it could get... That was that how the Tudors weren't really the precedent for what was happening at the coronation in 1902. Their coronations had largely followed the 14th century Liber Regalis and a smaller book, the so-called Little Device, put together for Richard III in the 1480s. Those documents had laid out, you see, not only what would happen in the Abbey, but also who should process where and when and with whom in the processions before and afterwards. It all seems to be rather formal and rigid, meant to create an impression of power. Well, you remember the coronation of November the 7th in 1902 did revive quite a lot of the old Liber Regalis ceremonies inside the Abbey, but all the popular excitement going on everywhere else was completely different from anything the Tudors would ever have attempted. 
this was something that was really new. Partly, the British monarchy had got caught up in that popular Victorian enthusiasm for anything historical. Edward VII himself loved a good pageant. In strong contrast to his mother, when he caught sight of a film camera, he stopped the procession so that they could get a better shot. It's also been pointed out that the makers of that silent French film, you know, the mock-up of the coronation, were remarkably well informed about what the coronation service was going to consist of. Mm -hmm. Someone, (laughs) Someone at the palace had clearly been feeding them information. Edward, maybe. In the years after the coronation, Britain was gripped with pageant fever. Enormous casts of amateur enthusiasts dressed themselves up in homemade costumes and were drilled into presenting tableau and scenes from British history. The arrival of the Romans, the Anglo-Saxon pagans, some visit to the local town of Elizabeth I or Charles II. There might be literally thousands of performers, more than were watching, but that didn't matter. The taste for spectacular, romanticised, dressing up, extravagantly inaccurate history... Was enormous, rather like the pageant that was staged before the London Olympics in 2012. Yeah, all that nonsense about the suffragettes, for example. Well, if you want to know the real story of the British female suffrage movement, check out our podcast, The Secret History of the Suffragettes. The evidence is that the Edwardian public didn't take the pageants nearly as seriously as their writers and directors did. Performers often shouted and waved to the audience and snuck in the old beer. For them, well, it was just <laughs> all a bit of oldie worldy fun. And that was exactly the same for the new royal spectaculars. After all, when it was announced that the coronation was being postponed because the king had had an urgent operation for appendicitis and that his life was in danger, the public response... Well, it was hardly sympathetic. This wasn't about the king, for goodness sake. Everyone had been promised a holiday and a party, and a holiday and a party they were jolly well going to have. Some town councils scaled things down and turned services of celebration into prayers for the king's health. Others, like Leeds and Bradford, only went ahead with children's events. But in Hemel Hempstead, where everything was cancelled, there was rioting in the streets. At Watford... Shops belonging to the local coronation planning committee were looted. In Dunstable, an angry crowd threw stones through the mayor's windows. The king might be dying. There might soon be a funeral, not a coronation. But what the public wanted was their bit of fun. So by 1902, British monarchy found itself stuck in a mixture of middle class morality and popular, if rather superficial, historical pageantry. There were other pressures on them too. These events were also about international politics. With the creation of a powerful unified Germany in 1871, tension and nationalism had been on the rise across Europe. When, on the 1st of January 1871, the Prussian king proclaimed himself as Kaiser or Emperor of Germany, Victoria probably had herself proclaimed Empress of India. Foreigners admired the British Navy, but they laughed at the small British army, quite right too. So getting it parading through the streets, especially bolstered by troops Britain could pull in from all over its empire, was a significant international statement. In 1897, at Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, the colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, was also in the middle of a campaign to get Britain's colonies to sign up to becoming a federation with lower tariffs on trade around the empire. 
The evidence is that very few in the general public could care less about the empire. But in 1897, with war brewing in South Africa, the Russians occupying part of China and showing signs of moving also on British routes to India through Persia, the British government needed as spectacular a show of imperial strength as they could muster. So Victoria's Diamond Jubilee was quietly or rather publicly and noisily, hijacked into becoming an imperial spectacle. Those marching soldiers and camels were fun to watch, but they were also serving an international political purpose. And as the historian Roy Strong points out, that was another role the royals were going to have to play throughout the 20th century. At the coronation of George VI in 1937, the display of old-fashioned British imperial pomp, complete with old-fashioned British open carriages, was intended to contrast as strongly as possible with the new marching military of Hitler and Mussolini. Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953 was similarly a statement to the USA and the new European community that little battered old Britain wasn't done yet. At least they weren't admitting it. The coronation of Charles III is in the context of Brexit and deep economic crisis. Carries as much international weight as anything that had gone before. Middle class, street spectaculars, popular history, Britain's international image. These are all parts of the newly invented Edwardian monarchy that have never gone away. And behind it all, there's one final Edwardian figment that hasn't vanished and without which it's not possible to understand the modern British monarchy. The chilling ghost of Lord Isha. The monarchy Britain has today is very much a late Victorian and Edwardian monarchy, created, you might say, trapped in the expectations that existed in the 1890s and 1900s. And if one man is responsible for that, it is Reginald Brett. He's usually known by the title he inherited in 1904, Viscount Isha. Well, let's leave aside his abuse of schoolboys at Eton, including, it is said, his own son. And his close friendship with the MP Lewis Harcourt, who would eventually take his own life for doing much the same. Isha was every inch a toff. He got a dull job in the civil service through a friend from Eton. He then wormed his way into the royal circle through a friend from Cambridge he'd met at a party. He wrote in oily prose about the holy mystery and the awe and the sanctity of Queen Victoria's court. He blamed the neglect of court ceremonial for the French Revolution. Like a lot of aristocrats caught up in the history craze of the late 19th century, Isha believed in reviving the past with its feudal hierarchy and also its soldierliness. And he was an organising genius. Edward, then Prince of Wales, invited Isha onto the committee planning Victoria's Jubilee in 1897. And over the next five years, the man in some ways created the monarchy we have now. Isha had very little time for ordinary British people, what he called the millions of drudges, to whose drab of existence the royals could add some colour here and there. Democracy, he added, always preceded the fall of empire. But even Isha could see that the support of ordinary folk mattered for the royals. 
When the route of the Jubilee procession was announced in 1897, landlords began evicting tenants so that they could charge spectators a premium for the view. Extraordinary. Isha found out and spread rumours around that the route might change, even at the last minute. He might despise ordinary Brits, but he needed them to line the streets. Isha believed that working-class people were moved by all this pageantry. He imagined that posh people like himself were way above it. In fact, as historian William Kuhn points out, it was the reverse that was often true. Working people just saw a procession of people in fancy dress for what it was. It was Isha and the Toffs who burst into tears. Isha brought together in himself all the various elements that had been brewing up by 1897. He was crazy about empire. He'd written his own book about it in 1896. He was also a stickler for precedent, doing things as they'd always been done. He told Edward, I think there is a great advantage in following as far as possible ancient precedents. So much of the power and dignity of the monarchy is derived from its antiquity. He imagined that antiquity especially appealed to the colonies, which he supposed had no history of their own. It's all just a lot of nonsense. Most people don't want to know whether or not things are based on some old habit or document. What does it matter if it works? But one basis of the royal's popularity in Britain was, and still is, the appearance of Merry England and the olden days. Sticking to precedents and acting out popular history are cards they can play with some show of conviction. And Isha loved all of that. Isha was also mad about the theatre, which was just then going through a bit of a golden period in London. Theatres were filling their auditoriums with popular melodramas and musicals. They were, and still are, very much the model for the royal spectaculars. Isha just adored the dressing up. In fact, he insisted that everyone in royal ceremonies, not just the military, had to wear a uniform to distinguish themselves from the mere mortals who could watch from the sidelines. In 1897, he told the Lord Mayor of London and the representatives of the various trade guilds that they were welcome to stand outside St Paul's while Victoria and her carriage heard the traditional Te Deum hymn of thanksgiving, but only if they came in some colourful-looking robes. At Edward's coronation in 1902, Isha dressed all the central characters up in blue, in contrast to the scarlet velvet of the peers, and he seated people in stagey Chippendale chairs. Well, he only had to watch the funeral of Elizabeth II over a century later to see that Isha's love of uniforms and stagey presentation has stuck. We've now also actually discovered who it was who leaked the information about the coronation to those filmmakers working in France. It was one Stanley Quick. And he was, you guessed, Isha's private secretary. If it meant dressing up and acting a bit of history to move the masses, then Isha was your man. If it means playing the modern media game then Isha was the man who started it. And Isha, as a good thesp, believed in rehearsals. Once Edward VII was out of danger and went off to his yacht to recover from having his appendix out, Isha took over the rehearsals from the hopeless Duke of Norfolk. There were to be no more embarrassing mishaps at royal events. And this meticulous organisation too has remained. If anything, along with the uniforms and the commentators murmuring about history, it's become the most distinctive feature of royal events. And you hear the ghost of Isha was assisted by the new Earl Marshal who ran the coronations of 1937 and 1953, Bernard the 16th, Duke of Norfolk. Now, the 16th Duke, unlike the 15th Duke, was a military man, formerly of the Royal Horse Guards. 
Now the rehearsals were relentless, like invading Normandy. At George VI's coronation in 1937, the Duke waged a bind for every minute any part of the ceremony was either early or late. Well, history doesn't record his financial position after the event, but this particular Duke of Norfolk's obsessive need to mix popular entertainment with military precision has been absolutely part of royal spectacle ever since. The answer to the question whether the modern coronation of British monarchs was invented in 1902 is both no and yes. No, the ceremony in the Abbey is authentically based on medieval texts, some of them Anglo-Saxon. They're neither exclusively British nor unchanged, but they do have very old origins. But even this isn't as old as it looks. It grew out of a Victorian obsession with Britain's constitutional and liturgical history. After all, you don't need to use old ceremonies with dressing up and swords and paying homage. Somebody could have thought of something modern for a modern monarchy. But playing at Merry England was in fashion in 1902, and the royals have been stuck with it ever since. Almost everything else about their ceremonial was invented in the late Victorian and Edwardian period, right down to the balcony appearances at Buckingham Palace, which started at Edward VII's coronation in 1902. And also those open carriages, which were old-fashioned in 1887. You know, in 1953, for the coronation of Elizabeth II, they had to hire them from a film company in Elstree. <laughs> It's all a strange mix of military manoeuvres and the mock medieval, Victorian street processions and Edwardian theatre. It worked for Edward VII. By the time he was lying in state in 1910, another tradition invented in his reign, he was by far the most popular monarch for centuries. Royal spectacle is still regarded as a way to appeal to some imaginary past and so rally support, not just for the royals themselves, but for Britain's tottering governmental system and international standing. Edward VII had finally recovered sufficiently to be crowned on Saturday the 9th of August 1902. By that time, many were bored of the whole business. Because the Boer War had just ended, there'd been rather a lot of public holidays and processions that year. So on the day of the coronation, many Londoners did what they would always do on an August bank holiday. They got on the train and went to the seaside. London town was emptier than usual. For the start of the ceremony, Hubert Parry had written a great anthem for the arrival of the King and Queen. We've been playing little excerpts from it as we've been going along. But for all Isha's rehearsals, someone gave the signal to start too soon, and the anthem had finished before Edward and Alexandra had even arrived. The poor organist had to keep making something up until they got there, and then they had to perform the whole thing all over again. Well, it's a wonderful piece of music. Who wouldn't want to hear it twice? Because of the king's condition, the ceremony was even shorter than before. Archbishop Temple was even older than before. He put the crown on back to front and couldn't get up when he knelt to pay homage. When his rival, Randall Davidson, came over to ask if he were all right, he shouted loudly, go away! Oh, but, there, no. but there were no microphones at coronations until 1937, so very few people heard anything at all. Finally, that evening, people could at last watch the French film originally shot for the June coronation. Of course, the ceremony had been shortened since the film was made, so some of it was now wrong. When he watched it, Edward didn't mind. He was delighted. What a wonderful thing cinema is. It's found a way to record even the parts of the ceremony that never happened. Ça, c'est réellement fantastique. <laughs> he was particularly pleased that in the film, he looked taller than his queen. Kings of England have often been sensitive about their height. Can't imagine who you mean. Up and down the country, towns and villages now put on at least some of the festivities they'd originally planned for June. 
in Coventry, they did the whole thing again. This time, in fact, they combined it with the Godiva pageant, a 17th century invention commemorating an 11th century lady who may or may not have ridden naked through the town. As a protest. As a protest against her husband who'd been mistreating the townsmen. Anyway, the procession had been neglected for some years because it used to create, uh, what can we say, quite a bit of um, unruliness. Even though the woman, or sometimes a man, playing Godiva never wore less than a flesh-coloured dress. Anyway, in Coventry in 1902, it was revived again, this time with the London actress Vera Geddes as the eponymous heroine. She was accompanied by a long, a very long procession of people in homemade medieval-looking costumes and tradesmen showing off local industry, riding old bicycles. Which was, in fact, one of the things that Coventry made. Towing an automatic screw machine and a fire engine from 1716. It took over two hours to go by. You can see nine minutes of it on the British Film Institute website. Have a look, it's really charming. But perhaps those commentators had been right back in 1897. Metal workers in their aprons don't make much of a grand spectacle. In 1937, the Coronation Committee had been meeting to plan the crowning of Edward VIII. When he abdicated to marry Wallace Simpson, the committee just calmly went on planning as before, the same day. Different king, nothing said. That's makes, weird. Makes you wonder, <laughs> as we see in our series on Edward VIII, Simpson, Hitler and the lobster, you'll have to listen to it to find out what that's about, <laughs> just how far Edward really abdicated and how far he was pushed. In 1953, the Coronation Committee flatly refused to allow TV cameras until an outcry from the press and a firm word from the young Queen. TV licences jumped from one and a half million to three million. Go and watch some of it. We'll put a link on our website. It is an endless procession of old men in fancy dress, carrying the swords of this and the rods of that. And the rings of something and the armils of something else. And the order of this. <laughs> the order of that. And the Duke of somewhere. Yeah, and the Earl of somewhere else. But finally, the young Elizabeth arrives, looking terrified. It is actually an extraordinary moment. For all his dewy-eyed later statements, Richard Dimbleby's famous commentary on the day was quite careful. Yes, coronations have been happening in the Abbey for a long time, but Dimbleby doesn't really suggest that what we're actually witnessing is necessarily all that old. And he's right. And Lord Isha? He got into reforming the army and was once said to have slept with Douglas Haig under the stand at Goodwood Racecourse. It didn't, as we know, improve the army's dreadful performance in the Great War. Or indeed Douglas Haig's. As you'll hear in our podcast, Nightmare in the Trenches. Isha finally fell out with the royals for becoming too ordinary and was disillusioned with Britain, which he said had disappeared, quotes, under an avalanche of women. Meaning some women getting the vote in 1918. The present spectacle of a royal family, no longer as ordinary, but as media celebrities, might, or perhaps might not, have him spinning in his family vault. I think he'd have loved it. Just too many women. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Cafe and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. (laughs) 